On Pentecost Day, God has answered Moses' prayer in an affirmative. He has poured out that Spirit on all of us. We are all prophets. That is, we speak on God's behalf every time we forgive someone their sins, or tell them that God loves them, or bear witness to the Lord. God promises that these words and actions are infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. Hello, this is Pastor John Edding. Thank you for listening to the Sandhills Lutheran Ministry Podcast. This sermon, preached on the day of Pentecost from the Book of Numbers, is entitled, All the People a Prophet. Well, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our reading begins with the word so. Now, it's not evident in the English uh, Standard Version, the uh, text that we read, but uh, in the original Hebrew and maybe some other English uh, translations, it has that so, you know, NIV translation. So Moses went out. That's how that first verse goes. That word so tells us that we're at the end of a story. Um, much has happened in the few, before the few verses that we heard today um, when Moses says, and here's our key verse for today, verse 29. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's the key verse. That's what we're thinking about. He's speaking words uh, that bring to conclusion a much longer series of events. Um, Moses probably had very little idea that what he was speaking about would happen on Pentecost Sunday. But on that first Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured down on God's people. And ever since, the Spirit has been placed on all of God's people in a way greater than before. So let's take a look at that story behind Moses' words of unintended prophecy. Well, we, that story is really recounted in the book of Exodus, uh, where we meet Yahweh. Now, most English translations um, have Yahweh translated as the Lord. Now, the Lord, Yahweh, is God who wields all power in heaven and on earth. And Yahweh is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he's devoted to their descendants and And he leads Israel from a known story of being slaves in Egypt to an elusive good. That would be the promised land. Okay, There's all uh, these events that happen between um, delivering them from this evil to um, taking them, leading them to the promised land. We know the story. The story is ours as well. And it starts with them as slaves in Egypt. And we, you know, it's our story as well. So we're there, right there with us. We can imagine ourselves in this drama um, as we're straining under the, you know, the, the load of the bricks. And we can groan right along with all the Hebrew slaves um, crying out for help. God heard their groaning. And he doesn't work just directly. He works through Moses um, a intermediary, you could say. He calls Moses from a burning bush and he empowers. Who does he call? Well, he calls an 80-year-old outcast shepherd to be his messenger before Pharaoh. Yes, Moses is his first-round draft pick. (laughs) Um, And he picks him 
to go to Pharaoh, bring his people out of Egypt. So Moses packs his bags. He heads up. He teams up with his older brother, Aaron. Uh, his, and uh, he took his, in his hand a staff. And of course, we're in Vacation Bible School this year. We're using a Western Roundup theme. Um, and this would, you could say, to put it in the words of a Western theme, uh, this had all the makings of a showdown between Sheriff Moses and the bad guy Pharaoh, you know, with the, the black Bart hardened heart, right? Um, it would be a high noon showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. It really was a showdown between God and the gods of Egypt. Um, the 10 plagues are God's punishment against Egypt for the regime's violent mistreatment of Israel. God delivers his people with a mighty hand. Um, and they're led to the Red Sea. They're trapped there, but then God leads them through the sea. Pharaoh's armies follow. The water collapse. God drowns them. And then Moses then leads his people safely out of Egypt, through the water, safely into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness... There's not a lot of food in the desert, not a lot of water, so God provides for them. And again, they have to learn and trust and that God will provide for them in this wilderness. He sends them miraculous manna as their daily bread, you know, heavenly bread, um, water from the rock to soothe their thirst. They're, they're led to Mount Sinai. And as God's people there, of course, they're given what? They're given the Ten Commandments. God wants them. They're already his people, but he wants them to know his will walk in his ways. And so he basically asked them through Moses, will you do this? Will you walk in my ways? Will you do my will? And they say, yes, we'll do it. But also, we don't realize, remember this as much, um, but along with the Ten Commandments is God's calling for them. Their purpose for being his called people is to be his missionary people, to go to all the nations of the earth. And he basically says, will you do this? And Israel says, yes, we'll do it, you know, eagerly. But then, of course, we know the story. We know the rest of the story. What happens after the giving of the Ten Commandments, this missionary um, calling? Well, the Israelites become impatient with God, <laughs> impatient with Moses, and then they build an idol that they were used to in Egypt, the golden calf. So they're bowing to the golden calf. They're showing their rebellion, not just unfaithfulness. They show their rebellion and unfaithfulness when God sends through Moses, uh, you know, the, the spies, to the spy out the land, and they come back with an unfaithful report. Um, and because they were unfaithful, they didn't trust God to go into this land uh, and that God would provide. They, they, that led to another 40 years of wandering in the, the wilderness. And can you imagine it? You know, some people think one and a half to two million people were out there wandering in the wilderness and they needed to be fed. And manna would sustain a person, but it's probably the consistency, almost the taste of like oatmeal. So can you imagine, you know, um, living off of oatmeal, eating oatmeal every day for 40 years? We probably complain and grumble too. <laughs> Uh, the emphasis is, again, on their grumbling, their dissatisfaction. They're not content. They want to go back 
to Egypt. They're in rebellion. The people complained. They wanted meat. God gave them meat, but he was so frustrated with them, he used the meat as a punishment. In the verse right before our reading, verse 20, um, he says, you're gonna, I'm going to give you meat, but it's gonna, you're going to have so much meat, so much quail, that it's going to come out of your nostrils. <laughs> it's become loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. And you've wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Well, you've got to identify with Moses and sympathize with him. I mean, he's, he is weary and worn out right before our reading we learn. He's discouraged. He even asked God to take his life. That's how down he was. In answer to his prayer, God gives the 70 elders. Now we come to our reading. He gives the 70 elders. He takes some of their spirit and places them in these elders, and they show some type of prophetic behavior that authenticates their call to help Moses. Now, this prophetic behavior happened at the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, we also know it as the tabernacle or the sanctuary. We learn about the the tabernacle, um, the tent of meeting in Exodus. Uh, It's In Exodus 25, we learn that the tabernacle or this tent of meeting is patterned after God's heavenly home. And the structure will end up being about 30 feet long, uh, 10 feet wide, 15 feet high. It's really, uh, and it's, it's a portable place. It moves with them in their wanderings. And it's a place where God will live among the people of Israel. So I, here's a takeaway. God wants to dwell with his people. So how does he do this without consuming them with his holiness? Well, he comes down in the cloud. And really think of the cloud as the physical manifestation of God's presence among them. He wants to be with them. And it was where he promised to meet Moses and then reveal what he was going to do. And what he wanted to say and what he wanted Moses to do and say. Now, something strange happened that day um, that the 70 elders received the Holy Spirit. Two men actually kind of refused to go out to the tent of meeting. Their names are Eldad and Medad. The Spirit of God comes upon them and they start prophesying in the camp. And God doesn't care about location. They have been chosen. They get the Spirit. Now notice Joshua. Joshua is an assistant of Moses from his youth. And he says, my Lord Moses, stop them. I just kind of pictured... Joshua as this uh, zealous, you know, assistant of of Moses. Um, But Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? And here comes that key verse. But would all that the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now, notice how Moses is not jealous for himself, especially for glory. Uh, He sees the spirit as a gift. It's not a possession. Things, some things don't diminish when they're shared, like love. It may even abound uh, in sharing them. And that's the way the Holy Spirit. And would that the Holy Spirit be placed on all of God's people? Joshua, however, wants to make this orderly. He protests. Stop them. He wants this to make this fit into structure. You know, they had to be at the tent of meeting. But Moses, see God, God at work here. Let me just step aside and do... Um, an application is very relevant to our reading. You know, in church, we're used to having an organization of people um, into structures, you know, committees, 
boards, voting assemblies, and so on, those are good things. That's a divine gift. The organization of the church reflects God's orderliness, and this we learn about that um, in Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, when he says that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So order and structure are good, and that's what really Joshua is gunning for here. But order and structure are not the end. They're only tools. Uh, the real goal is that God's Spirit would be poured out on all the people. Would that the Holy Spirit be placed on all of God's people? So Moses understands that. Joshua does not, though. Are we more like Moses or Joshua, do you suppose? Would that all the Holy Spirit be placed on all God's people? So let's look at how in this idea that the Spirit be on all God's people, how Jesus becomes the tent of meeting for the church. We don't have the tabernacle. We're not moving around with a tent of meeting, right? So how does that work in our lives? Well, Jesus is that tent of meeting. Um, We have a tent of meeting where the Spirit is placed upon all God's people. His name is Jesus, and we learn about this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So no longer does God come down on a cloud, but in a manger. He comes down as a baby, And his ministry begins with his baptism. And his father's voice is joined with the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And Jesus' whole ministry is spirit-filled, accompanied by the Holy Spirit placed on him. All that Jesus said and did revealed what God wanted for his people. There's that tent of meeting theme, the cloud theme. So when people heard Jesus, they heard God speaking to them. And when they saw Jesus doing something, they saw God in action. You could say this, in Jesus, we meet God. And then on the cross, Jesus meets everything that would keep the Spirit from being placed on us. You know, we're just like the Israelites wandering in the, in the wilderness. Um, but all our complaining and discouragement, rebellion and weariness, idolatry and deep resignation, all of it meets Jesus. And he sheds his blood. He sheds his blood to bring forgiveness for all of that. And he secures an eternal redemption for us. We are delivered. And when he rises from the dead, he spends some time with his his disciples, but then he ascends into heaven, and then ten days later he sends the Spirit. And we see that in the description of Pentecost. And we we went through that earlier. Um, You know, Moses' word of promise. And then comes back to us. It's fulfilled. Would that the Holy Spirit be placed on all of God's people. And in Jesus, our tent of meeting, his words come true. He places his spirit on us. Next, let's take a look at this. Let's take a look uh, at how the spirit is put on us in word and sacrament. So where do we meet Jesus in our tent of meeting today? When does he place his spirit on us now? Well, go back to your baptism. And when the water was combined in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
When that happened, Jesus scooped us up as his people. And his own people. And all of us received the Spirit on that day. And that's renewed whenever we take the Lord's Supper, whenever we open the Bible and we read God's Word, the Holy Spirit is active through His Word and brings us to Jesus. We meet Him there. And His Spirit pours into our lives. Think of it this way. I've, I've read that Pentecost um, is like opening the floodgates of the dam and then the Spirit bursts forth to create and grow the Spirit, to grow the church. But I see the analogy a bit differently. When a dam is designed for hydroelectric power is built, some of that river continues to flow downstream, and people use that, right? That water. They, they live near the water. They use that water to grow gardens and fields. Towns have water for drinking and bathing, recreational. Think Lake, Lake McConaughey, right? Recreational sports go on in the reservoir formed by the dam and downstream. So think of it this way, before Pentecost, the work, you could say that the work of the Holy Spirit was less evident. It was found mainly in Israel, and it was particularly for major events and through people like the prophets. So it's like, think of it, it's like the people living near the water. But when the switch is thrown, and the water running through the dam is used for generating electricity, then the extent and the degree of the water increases dramatically. The Hoover Dam, it, for example, um, it provides 4 billion kilowatts per year and powers the homes and the businesses of 1.3 million people in Arizona, Nevada, and California. So again, think of it this way. After the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's work is unleashed and the church grows throughout the world and empowers millions of people to believe and produce the fruit of faith. Would that the Holy Spirit be placed on all God's people? And last, let's see how the Spirit is active in our lives. You know this verse. Uh, Therefore, I, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is, is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. So again, on Pentecost Day, God has answered Moses' prayer. He's poured out that Spirit upon all of us. We're all prophets, you could say. We speak on God's behalf. That's what a prophet does. We speak on God's behalf every time we forgive someone their sins or tell them that God loves them or bears witness to the Lord. And God promises that those words, these words and actions are infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that happens inside the church in many whom God gathers into the structure, but it's not limited there. God sometimes pours out that same spirit in strange and in unlikely places. But let me give you really quickly three examples of the spirit being placed on us to confess Jesus. One example is midweek or VBS or preschool uh, such as when the you know, children sing, this little gospel light of mine. Um, another example, uh, last month we had uh, two confirmation students who professed their, their faith and publicly in, in Christ as their Savior and Lord. That's another example. The third one is, we're going to do this one right after the sermon, and that is we're going to confess the Apostles' Creed. We are, um, you know, we... The Spirit is placed on us to lead us to confess Jesus. We're doing, we're confessing in Jesus in all three of those examples. 
And remember this, prophets not only tell the future, more often actually they, they speak the truth of God about the present, and that has implications for us, for you and me. And Moses prays in this reading that all God's people would be prophets and that God, the Lord would put his spirit on them. God has heard his prayer and he's answered it. And Jesus authorizes all of us to speak on God's, God's word of forgiveness and to know that forgiveness, this forgiveness here, this blows me away, the forgiveness spoken here, according to Matthew 18, 18 and John 20, 22 to 23, the forgiveness spoken here is spoken in heaven as well. So be a prophet today. Forgive, forgive a sinner. Do not understand the foolish frailty of your spouse, your parent, a child, or your neighbor. Be a prophet instead. Forgive it. And Moses spoke words of promise. Would that the Spirit be on all the Lord's people. And in Jesus, our tent of meeting, those words come true. And when we meet Jesus in his word and sacraments, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is placed upon us. Moses' words come true. Moses' words that all that the Lord would put his spirit on all his people find fulfillment. When Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to his church to confess his name. And every time that we confess that Jesus is as Lord, we see the Holy Spirit active in our lives, and we know that Moses' words have come true in our lives. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.